Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Patrick Green. And Micah Green. Hi, guys. Hi, Greens. Hey, happy Friday. Happy Friday. Happy holiday Friday. Yeah, we never record on Fridays. This is an extremely rare, because we're always like, we need to keep Fridays open. But uh, because of because of you know how crazy it is around the holidays for all of us, uh, this was the only night we could record for like a two week period. So we snapped for it up. Everyone listening, this is the greens. So they'll travel six hours to do something for two hours, and then they'll come home, and then they'll do something else, and they'll do something else. <laughs> this and is we, true. That's I'm not gonna <laughs> dispute that at all. Oh, yeah. I'm glad we. I'm, I'm glad jealous, we're doing this actually. on Friday. No, and this is, this is a great uh, way to spend a Friday night. So I'm really it happy is about it, it is. Mm-hmm. And especially and with Shoulder of Orion, which we don't get to record as much lately because we're doing our monthly schedules. So this is a little bit of even more of a party. This is fun. And this is back to basics for us a little bit. We've been doing some interviews, got some more lined up. We're working on people who worked on Blade Runner, the original, and then 2049, behind the scenes, effects, models, that kind of thing. Um, hopefully everyone enjoyed our interview with Bill George. I really loved it. I thought it was great. Um but tonight we are here to discuss something that I've been thinking quite a bit about as I think about replicants. And I'm always having the conversation of what it's like to be othered, uh, an other person. I'm um, not as me myself, but yes, obviously that's me as a biracial gay person. But um, what it means in the Blade Runner world and who these people are. One question I had, which we will explore at some point, which is what are replicants? And we've talked about this before, but. I still, I don't feel like we got to, are they part robot? We don't really know. <laughs> you're, you're so fixated on that question, Shane. I am fixated on this question, because um, fuck joy. It's <laughs> <laughs> ah, like the eternal wow. Jamie question. It's like, just tell me, are there buttons in them and springs? Or is this like, how much <laughs> robot are we talking? Well, part of it is the idea that what world, what world would we become if we can create a human in a lab and not call it human. And we cannot call it human enough. And all world governments say, sure. And we have these people do their slave labor. What kind, what, ha- what are they in themselves that that can happen? But that's going to be fodder for another episode. The real question is who is love is love the antagonist or the protagonist of Blade Runner 2049. And I thought about this question because I think about Roy Batty all the time, as I know both of you do, especially you, Patrick. Roy Batty is someone who we have agreed upon as sort of the hero of the story, not the antagonist of Blade Runner. And my question, those questions I'm posing to love or about love and who is she? And there's some fundamental things about her that, you know, she's in kick ass. She's a good fighter but she's also a servant. There's a lot going on in her emotionally. So that's kind of the setup for this. Um, yeah. So what do you guys think? Before we unpack those 
great questions, though. I do have to tell you, I have come to the decision that our patrons are definitely protagonists. I have to say, mm-hmm. I've been hemming and hawing on this quite a bit. I think the patrons are definitely protagonists. And because of that, we're going to give them a quick shout out. Before we get started tonight with the full episode, uh, because this is the final thing that we're recording this year, and I mean that you know across both shows, across all of our Patreon content, this is the last thing we're recording for 2023. And so because of that, uh, we wanted to do a quick shout out to everybody who joined Patreon this year. Um, some of these people have since left. Totally understand it. It's okay. But you deserve a shout out anyway, so we're going to give you one. Uh, we also have a kind of enormous group of people who are following us on Patreon, um, but not paying, which also thank you for doing that. But I just, if you're if you're one of those people and you're listening to this, I think you're missing out on most of everything that we post. So if you're wondering where the content is, it's because it's um, it's only for people in, on paying tiers, because that's the people supporting the show. So if you would like to sign up at that level, we would love to have you. You get a nice big shout out next year, and you'll be getting tons of content that you're sitting on right now, like hundreds of hours of stuff that um, you can unlock just by signing up at the, at the first tier of uh, Patreon support. Anyway, um, to to join, go to patreon.com slash perfect organism, because again, we share this account with both of our shows, um, or go to bladerunnerpodcast.com and you can do so there as well. Uh, So let's go back to January. We have Dave Bright, Todd Norman, Tony Q, Nick Carmichael, Mario Benvenuto, Nawan, Adam DeJanes, Jordan Nash, Austin Williamson, Joshua Holko, Zarnold Quigley. Max Farnell, Ian Hughes, Nick Bruff, Jacob Abraham, Nordrusa, Francisco Martinez, Frederick Faith, Ross Yost, Elliot Rocca, Zeno Queen, Tom Prentice, Brian McKnight, Nick Cannon, Gavin Hay, Joshua Rivers, Mark Mattis, Loki Jackal, Arturus Zavekas, Josh Bedoin, Clayton Pulley, Eustacio Palomares, Palomares, Will Howe, Ian Aiello, Weed, Krista Brown, Damian A. Thorne, Dino, Sean Rosado, Hunter J., Eel, Thomas C. Wolf, Stanislav Sin, Ralph Feldmeyer, Ryan Creasy, Gabriel Sanchez, Gareth Ryan, Alfredo Ramirez, Dave Kausick, Kyle Baker, Julian D'Souza, Steve Tyndall, Jeff DeLoff, Tom Baker, Darren, Faroon, Juliana Margison, Aaron Williams, Bex Lewis, and finally, our final patron of 2023, just joined December 11th. Welcome to Alexander Wagner. Or Wagner. <laughs> I don't know. This is probably, probably Wagner. <laughs> Thank you so much to everybody. Thank you for the support this year. We have done so much cool stuff with, with your support. Uh, we have so much planned for next year as well, and we cannot thank you enough. Thank you. Thank you. All right. First and foremost, love is the best one, which is something that I am always so struck by from her performance. Um, so... I don't know if I really have a straight answer to your questions about her being a protagonist versus an antagonist, but I do think a lot about love as someone who is very desperately fighting a battle 
that's not just her kicking Kay's ass, you know? Like, she is, her battle is for Wallace, and she wants to be exactly what he needs and wants. So her whole deal, like, she's on this journey, I think, simultaneously that Kay is to trying to to find value in herself as someone who has been shown over and over and over again that they are not valuable and that they are, in fact, expendable and that Wallace is trying to make a better one and a better one and he is constantly showing her or threatening her, at least, with being disappointed in her. And um, he shows her all the time how easily it is for him to get rid of people just like her. Um, Before I start rambling too much, I really liked what you were talking about, Jamie, when you talked about um, whether a world that has replicants in it could actually view the those replicants as human. And I think that becomes a very individualized question. It becomes a question that would be a different answer no matter who you asked. Um, for me, the answer is yes, they are human. And that's why I think it's easy for me to connect with them. Um but I don't know. I don't know if everyone looking at the movies or everyone, all the characters in there would agree. So for me, one of the most interesting things about love is is her clear struggle. And Sylvia Hux does such a great job with that, her struggle to be the best one, which is why I keep coming back to that line. And every time she says it or every time like I feel that she might think it in a scene or whatever, like when she does the right thing and she pleases Wallace for a moment, I always am thinking about that line that she says, like, I am the best one. And, and when she says it to Kay at the end, it's so powerful and so sad and so childlike. I just kind of see her. She's not a, really a hero in the story, but she's not really a villain either. She serves as someone to oppose Kay physically. And um, she does things that can be considered villainous, but I don't know if she's an actual villain. <laughs> I think this is a question that will get deeper the more we talk about it. And that's why I like it so much. But my short answer is she's definitely an antagonist in this movie, whereas Batty was definitely a protagonist. The main difference, I think, being that Batty exists in the film to teach a moral lesson, right? And love does not do that. Like love is not making Kay a better, um, you know, person or a better replicant by having encountered him she's not imparting some kind of like moral knowledge to the audience so i think in, in in terms of like screenwriting or like in very strict story terms i think definitely she's an antagonist i do think as micah is saying and as i know you've brought up in the past jamie there's a lot more to her than that though i think to try to label her as just good or bad or just hero or villain is to miss out on a lot of the amazing subtlety and gradation in that character but especially in sylvia hux's performance I think there's this amazing thing going on with her where she is so capable and so driven and so single-minded, and yet clearly there's more going on than that because she seems to doubt herself a lot throughout the movie. She seems, as Micah was saying, very afraid of not pleasing Wallace. She seems very afraid maybe of not being the best one. So when she says it, it's almost like an affirmation. It's like a statement of, I will be the best one no matter what. Like, I, this is my role. And in that way, I think there's actually something kind of 
not heroic, but um, notable about that because she's existing in an environment where a lot of people don't have roles, right? Like the world of 2049 is a world that's kind of listless. Like the people are depressed and people are out of work and hanging out in the hallways and people are combing the streets. Um, there's police. Like if you're a police, you definitely have a role to play, right? Um, and K fits into that category. But other than that, it's kind of, and you know, it may be if you work for Wallace, but other than that, what we seem to see there is people picking through garbage, essentially. And love is not picking through garbage. Love knows exactly why she exists and is immensely efficient at doing that role. So I think to, to go back to your point, Jamie, I think like if we look at it literally, she's not a protagonist, but there are protagonistic qualities to her that I definitely pick up on. One thing that really struck me and continues to strike me when I watched 2049, which I did like a week ago, that scene with her and uh, Officer Joshi, or is it Lieutenant? I can't remember. Um, that that thing she says, those the, uh, it's very poetic. She goes, you know, you tiny thing, um, you can't stop the tide with a broom. But there's something happening when, when she's telling her, when she's talking to Joshi about kind of what's coming, where I feel like she's she's not talking about Wallace anymore. She's talking about her people. She's talking about, yes, do you not understand what this is and that we are powerful and that you are nothing to us? And she reminded me a little bit of um, Fraser just in words in some ways that there's something going on with love that's bigger than Wallace that Wallace doesn't even really know. And Micah, you've brought this up a few times when we've talked about love, when she's in the presence of Wallace and she's very demure and yes, sir, here's a new model for you, sir. You, you know, just very, she's very kind of emotional, very tiny, um, very stoic, very statue-like, just kind of being this, trying to be as perfect as she can for her creator. And it's really fascinating. And she becomes something else in those moments. She, she doesn't, she's not the love that's, that's running after Kay in those moments. She's the love that wants to be loved. In my opinion, I don't, maybe I'm misperceiving that, but I, and it's kind of a play on her name, but there's something about her. And I feel like the replicants in general in 2049, where they just want to be loved for who they are. And they, that's a struggle for them because they are not seen as human. They're seen as automatons, which they, they also aren't. But those moments with Wallace and that moment with Joshi, I'm seeing elements of this person within her. And I think she is relegated by Wallace to being his baddie, like, go do my, my bidding for me. But at the same time, you see her in an office, she's getting her nails done. She's having virtual appointments with people who are interested in buying, which is so interesting too, that when we first see love, she's in a meeting with a client who's talking about purchasing replicants. She's selling her own people. She's in a position where she's selling her own people. That's got to be the strangest, most morally complicated thing to do. And so I take all of that and I look at her differently when I see it, when I see the film again. I think it's really interesting going off of what you were saying, Jamie, like morally she's able to do that. So like how was she envisioned and designed and 
how was her um, programming created so that she was totally fine doing that? I think I am the best one is that reason. Like that's coded so deeply in her. Like you said, Patrick, it's like her mantra. And in the moments when she's getting her nails done and selling her people, and in the moments when she's like, she is confronting Joshi, she becomes like this alive and very um, fearful thing. She becomes, she she actually wields her power, I think. Whereas when she is with Wallace, there's a completely different person in front of you when you see her and she's very childlike and that's what's so compelling to me about her is is she does she wants to actually be loved and she wants approval from probably one person that she's not going to get it from but for almost everybody else she knows she's the best one that's why she can walk up to joshi and say you tiny thing or she can kill that human um that was in the lab i forgot his name she literally like just kind of swats at him and he's dead. Coco. Like she's yes, Coco. She <laughs> she's so incredibly strong and powerful and like terrifying when she does those things. But she becomes so tiny when she's with Wallace. And it looks to me like in those scenes that she's not even breathing with him. So it's like it for me, it evokes just like such a quick sense of, oh my God, I feel for this for this person. I feel for her. And I want her to be okay. But then again, like she's trying to kill Kay in a few scenes and you're like, oh my God, like she's so dangerous. So it's just like, it's so compelling the black and white of her character, like this child and the Avenger that she is. Um, And her name being love. And when Kay says, oh, he named you. That's another affirmation of I am the best one. So like you can see those little fires in her when she gets her affirmations. So I, I agree a lot with what you said, Patrick, is that she's not an antagonist in the traditional sense of the word. Like she's not seeking to do evil because she is evil. She is seeking to hurt the audience's view of the hero because he is in her way and he is an obstacle for her to get to her objective, which is to be the best one. And for Wallace to get to his objective, which is to find out about the child um so it's it's just not black and white in that way with blade runner and that's why i think we're here talking about it it's just it's so complicated and fascinating and i think there's uh, uh something really important about what you said there towards the end about how i don't think it's even has anything to do with anybody being in her way i think it's just that they're in wallace's way so like she is acting not out of her own agency whatsoever she's really a, a basically is treated like an object that Wallace can point at things, right? Whether that be at a client to entice them or whether it be to a target to chase them, she is essentially Wallace's gun. Like she is she is the the arm of his of his law, you know? Uh and she has no say in that. Like she has no ability to contradict him. She's not allowed to. She can be terminated whenever he wants to, you know? Um and I think that part of the the dichotomy with her is that she is so powerful and she is so capable and yet she's so beholden to someone else that she is not herself whatsoever in any real way. And I think uh, we see this kind of like come out in interesting ways. Going back to what Jamie was saying about the first time, you know, we see her, <clears throat> you know, we initially see her in this kind of salesperson role. And then we see her in the library with Kay 
And the way that she conducts herself there, we've talked about this many times, even just kind of recently in an episode, is very childlike to me in a really honest way. What's interesting is that she's not childlike at all with the client, right? Which who's there to buy replicants for like a construction project or whatever. Like she she's very uh, you know forthright and confident and sounds like a middle aged saleswoman who's done this a long time and knows what she's doing and has the sheet pulled up and here you go. This is, this is what you'd like to buy. When she just after that goes and sees Kay, she's like very uh, timid almost and kind of bashful. And that is so interesting. So we can unpack that a little bit. But also, uh, you know, we then see her like very almost almost embarrassed by how strong she is, right? When she when she moves the memory vault door to the side and she looks kind of like sheepish about the fact that she can do that incredible feat of strength. There's this really interesting sense of like she does not want to draw attention from Wallace. Like she does, she wants to appear to be an instrument of his who is not there for her own glory but it's just there doing a job and nothing to look at. Don't worry about it. Like just, you know, I'm, I'm here for Mr. Wallace as she literally says that over and over again. And then at the end of the film, right, she thinks that she has killed Kay when they're on the Sepulveda wall during that incredible sequence. And she turns around to, to take Deckard, you know, off world. And then Kay comes and attacks her. And like the, the shock in her eyes as, cause as, as she's, you know, think she's killing Kay. She's saying, I'm the best one over and over again. She's doing that affirmation again. And when that is refuted by Kay coming back and killing her, the look in her eyes as she's, you know, being retired under the water is to me is so sad. It's like so accepting. It's like the first time she has realized that she is not. This is for real. Like every other time that this kind of thing has happened, she has found a way out of it. And this, and she's not going to in this final moment. So I do feel pity for her. And what's amazing, even the first time I saw the movie, you know, it's hard to put ourselves back in those shoes because we have so much history with it since then. But like, I remember that first viewing vividly and we've talked about it many times and it still feels fresh for me. And I remember when she was uh, being killed and like knowing that this was it, like this is clearly when she's going to be destroyed. I didn't feel happy about it. I felt like it was, um, you know, it didn't feel like a triumphant, you know, defeating of, uh, you know, of a villain. It, it felt like a, it felt like a, a funeral. It felt sad. Um, and I, I didn't feel sad. Like she obviously needed to die for the film to be able to conclude, like it needed to happen. So I wasn't sad about that necessarily because I understood it, but I was sad that she died the way that she did, that there was no resolution for that character, that she didn't find any space or strength, you know, for herself or her agency that was denied to her for her entire life. Would it be possible to reschedule this call, please? Yeah. Discussing her demeanor with Kay the first time she meets him is fascinating. And she is very demure with him. But I also think it's because he sees right through her. And I'm not, I don't mean that in a negative way. He just, you're a rep, he, he knows that she's a replicant. And he also checks her too. And he says, Oh, he named you like a pet because these people are pets. Essentially, they're guard dogs. Or they're hired, or they're a sex slave, or whatever they're they're purchased for. But he calls her out right away, and it makes her visibly uncomfortable. It's like, oh, he named you, and she's uncomfortable with that because, but she's in the presence of someone who is a higher authority than she is in those moments. Of course, he's at at the Wallace headquarters, so you know she's you know a head honcho there, but she's still just an attack dog. You know, an attack dog that has an office and um, 
has a you know daily a daily job that she does but it is interesting how Kay has the upper hand initially with her and it's not again it's not a, uh, an insidious upper hand it's just this hey these are our roles this is what i this is who i am this is what i am and i'm here uh to to follow this lead and they know who they are and they know their roles in that moment. And I I've spoken about this many times on this show, uh, that I love that I think it's beautiful, but also very, um, vulnerable for both of them is when love says, don't you love being asked personal questions? It makes one feel desired. And I feel like that gets at the heart of who love is and who he is in some ways, or maybe all replicants, they want to be seen as something necessary. They want to be seen as, as valids, as, um, people. And they recognize that it, it's just, it's such a beautiful moment. I can't go on enough about that moment and that moment they share together in their otherness that they realize who they are and they realize that they're not good enough and that they're only slaves. Um, Batty talks a lot about being a slave in the original Blade Runner. And then I feel like in 2049, we see that play out a little bit. Not only are the replicants in 2049 advanced, they're also, they've also digressed. They've taken away their free will in some ways, because if you notice with love, love definitely seems imprinted on Wallace. She can't threaten him. She can't, because she's, she could just tear him limb from limb if she wanted to, but she doesn't. Why doesn't she? Because he's imprinted on her. And I don't know, we haven't kept up with the comics, which, she, which we need to go back to at some point and read them. I think that love is L from the comics. And in, in Black Lotus, you see Wallace physically imprinting upon her, like the Lotus on her, on her, um, shoulder. So I, I think that this is, I, I'm pretty sure that this is the same person. Um, so her ties to him are, are, he is her maker, not, and not just like, oh yeah, we make replicants. He made her specifically to see what she would do. Um, so I think her loyalty to him is like your loyalty to your parents and God in a way, you know, or whatever, you know, if you were, a, you know, a religious person in that way, but that's who love, that's who Wallace is for her his, her parent and God. And that's a sobering person to be standing in front of, um, who created you, who made you, who can disassemble you, whatever. Um, but I, to your point, Patrick, uh, and Micah, I, I, she is very complicated and I don't think it is black and white. I think again, to your point, Patrick, there are moments where she is clearly, this is black and white and she's there to antagonize Okay, and she's there to hunt him down or to keep him on the straight and narrow or to follow him or to kill him if she needs to. Um, but that is one version of love. There is another version of love in play that wants something greater than that. That's what I believe. That's what I choose to believe. I think it's fascinating. And I think, didn't we do a whole scene episode on that one episode, uh, that one scene with Kay and love, that opening relation into their relationship? Yeah. I love thinking about the fact that they are two replicants alone. As far as we know, there's, I mean, maybe there's monitors that are like kind of listening in on them and monitoring their conversation, but the words that they choose to give to each other when they are alone as two replicants are fascinating. And the guard that they both have up and like love just kind of 
pushing it down just a little bit with that line that you like, Jamie, though, about it makes one feel desired. She's really testing the waters with him. And then he just doesn't bite back in the way that she thought. So she kind of retracts and resumes her demure um, facade. So like, I just think it's so cool to get a little peek into what replicants would say to each other by themselves without, at least without our overt knowledge of being monitored. Um, Even though they both like quote unquote, good replicants stay on task. K is there to find out about the serial code number and love is there to facilitate that and do the job that she's paid to do for Wallace as a representative of Wallace. Like you said, Patrick, she says that many times. I'm here for Mr. Wallace. I'm here for Mr. Wallace. Follow me. Um, it, it's, it's so interesting how they kind of get to uncomfortable territory and then revert back to these mantras, to these like sort of protective phrases that they use like okay i'm here for mr wallace you pushed me a little too far with that naming question you kind of made me feel like an animal and i don't want to feel like an animal i want to feel like the best one so it's just like absolutely fascinating and the performances obviously were so spot on in that moment we could sit here and do seven other podcasts about that one scene even with them but this it, it this discussion reminds me of why i love blade runner so much it's because we have this discussion about these characters and not just love, obviously, but like many of the characters from 2049 and 2019 Blade Runner, these replicants who are supposedly not humans, who we are shown that they are treated like not humans are so vastly complicated that we have a whole podcast about it. So it just goes to show that this writing and the story is so stirring that we can sit here and talk about it for hours. And just keep going. And I could keep rambling on and on about what I think about love and how much I feel for her and how much I don't want her to win when she's fighting Kay. But it, it, it's so thrilling to have that conflict as an audience member when you're watching it. It's it's. I remember in the theater when we first saw it, I was sitting there during that scene, the big fight scene with Kay and love where I was like, oh, like I don't want her to win, but I also don't want her to die. And there's... You just know as the audience member in that moment that there is only one way that the scene is going to end, and that is that one of them will fail. And I think it's awesome that we don't know, at least I don't know in the moment, like who I really want it to be. Obviously, I want Kay to win because Kay is the pro- the obvious protagonist. But you have to admit that you're still sitting there being like, oh, why did she have to be like, why did she have to die? Yeah. Uh, going back to what you were saying about their conversation, Micah, that is something that I also was thinking about. There are, uh, This is leaving the Decker rep thing aside. If you think Deckard's a replicant, then there's many examples of this. He's but not. If you, <laughs> but if you don't, well, it depends who's listening. You know, If you do think that he is human, then this point stands, which is that there are very few moments in either movie where we see um, replicants just speaking with each other, right? 2049 has, I mean, it opens with one, right? We have Sapper and Kay 
interacting with each other. That deserves an anatomy of a scene too. My God, I don't think we've ever done that. Yes, please. Let's do it. That's an, that's a really interesting yes, example, right? Yes. Because we see a similar, there's a, there's a similar sense of comfort between them. You, you ever pick up on that? Like they, there's an understanding that they kind of get each other and there's tension. There's tons of tension in that scene because it's clear where it's headed, but the tension doesn't come out of like a misunderstanding that they, they get each other. Like they understand their function. Sapper Morton was a warrior who became a farmer and Kay is a hunter and his target is in the room with him. So like they get that, that dynamic, they know why they're there. Likewise, when Kay shows up at the Wallace Corp building, he, once again, like love knows who he is. He is a detective. He is, the, he is a searcher, right? Love is an arm of Wallace as far as Kay knows. So like, once again, like they kind of get each other right off the bat with the uh, interactions with human characters and replicants, it's a lot muddier, right? There's a lot more of this kind of sussing out, like what's really going on? What are they saying? You know, we see that, or or, or there's there's different types of uh, threats. Like for example, uh, when uh, when Batty is confronting Chu, right? And, and Chu is terrified of him. Like there's moments like that where we see a replicant and a human talk to each other. And there's this real unsureness about where it's gonna go because they don't really get each other the way that the replicants get each other. Um, <clears throat> so, I think that's a really fascinating uh, point that you raised, Micah, which is a really good one. I also wanted to go back to that for a moment to talk about the fact that they're uncovering this tape between Rachel and Deckard. It's not a tape, it's a memory module, right? So that also is interesting because there's a wonderful little parallelism going on. Rachel, of course, was an experimental prototype, right? That that Tyrell had created to try to create a more you know human replicant. Love is, and, and this is if you take the, the continuity with the comics, if we take Jamie's point as being, uh, you know, real, then is also valid. But even, even if we don't, I think it's clear that love was created for a specific purpose by Wallace. She's not just this like Nexus 9 that he's pumping out. Like there's something specific about this Nexus 9, which is amazing. And that's part of why she's imparted with this almost Promethean sense of importance because you know he wants to populate the universe with these things and he's creating so many of them at a scale that's logarithmic and enormous and yet out of all of those faceless multitudes she's the one who gets to sit with him right i mean that is a huge deal for for anybody who but especially for anybody wrapped up in a you know i mean it's essentially a cult it's it's venerating this figure as this savior right so for her that's a huge deal um, and I think that if you look at it through that lens, if, even if you take away the kind of guard dog aspect, which all of us have talked about in different ways, and I think it's probably ultimately what's going on. If you look at it like she's just like a human, I mean, that would, I mean, you, she's a human serving the human who saved the world from destruction. And that is, talk about a power imbalance. Like that's, it's profound. Add to that the fact that she's not even actually human. She's an instrument that he's created. And that dynamic makes so much more sense. And it's also so much sadder because she really is, she really is singled out. Like she is, as Jamie said, like such an other in that situation because she's not like those faceless multitudes, but she's also never going to be Mr. Wallace. She's here to serve him as powerful and as great and as magnificent as she is. She is his stapler on his desk. Like she is the instrument that he gets to do what he wants with. And that, I think, dichotomy is really amazing. And I think 
it is such a testament again to Sylvia Hux as a performer because she nails that. We talk a lot about great performances and about how they typically have layers to them. So you can rewatch something and you can catch these little these little things that they do that will make a scene read slightly differently when you rewatch it. And Sylvia's performance is just full of that. Like the whole thing, you could take what Love is doing in many different ways and you can interpret her as being more heroic or more non-heroic um, depending on the moment or more or less human or more or less replicant. And it holds up under all that scrutiny, just like the film does. So I, I think uh, I think that's part of why she's such a great character to analyze for us. She understood the assignment, as the kids say. A couple of things. When we first meet Love, and you were uh, referencing this a little bit, Patrick, when we first meet Love as, as an audience uh, at the Wallace Corporation, who do we think of first? Rachel. We meet Rachel under very similar circumstances. Love, like Rachel, is this beautiful woman. Um, unlike Rachel, she's dressed in essentially white, whereas Rachel was dressed in black. Um, and Rachel or Love is in very similar surroundings. You got that like water waves on the on the wall, and um, she kind of steps out of the shadows to meet Kay, much like uh, Deckard meets Rachel. But we quickly understand that this n is not Rachel. Um, but it does something to us that we're presented with this, this vision, this vision of a woman, um, who I, is almost not even gendered. She looks like a woman, but that's kind of it. And one thing I, I've been thinking a lot about is how Wallace treats her when she's with him. He doesn't see her. And I, by see her, I mean he doesn't like engage with her. He doesn't. Um, oh, yeah, we know that. He's also blind. Is, yeah, he's also blind. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's not. For instance, obviously, you know, with, you know, he calls these replicants angels and he talks in very um, effusive ways about these things that he is making. Um, and he's kind of, and he says to, to Deckard later, because Decker's like, well, you don't have children. And then Wallace goes, well, I have millions or something like that. But he doesn't act like a man who has, who's a father. If love is the best thing that you've created and you see these people, these whatever, as your children, why don't you treat them like that? You guys are parents. When your kids come home from school, you light up. When they, you know, when they have questions, you light up. When they're in the room, when, you know, you're, you know that they're there. You can feel that they're there. Your heart's with them. Whereas with love, she's acting like this terrified child, but the father is indifferent to her. The father is only interested in what he she can do for him and his achievement at creating her, which I can't imagine the conflict that, that it creates within love, where, like, that moment when he's looking at the other replicant um, and he eventually kills her and you see love's tears. Why is she crying? Is she crying because she can't do anything about it? Which is what I suspect that what has happened in front of her is horrific where he's just slaughtered yet another one of her kind, a woman, no less because she can't do what he thinks women replicants should be able to do, which is to procreate. Um, her performance in that scene is heartbreaking because you see that there's something going on and she's looking at this 
creature, this replicant that's just been born, who's just been killed in front of her. And again, I'm trying to understand what's going on in her, but the horror of that, the horror, the trauma of that, who knows how many times he's done this. And this is not, Wallace doesn't really seem like a nice guy. Wallace is up in the clouds in his own ego, who he, you know, in terms of who he has created himself to be, I completely reject the story in, in Black Lotus. Fuck that story. It's horrible. <laughs> um, but he doesn't, he talks like a God, but he doesn't act like a God, like the way people think God act, should act, loving, benevolent, um, kind. He doesn't really have any of those qualities. I mean, you could, you could argue that he's kinder to Deckard, but again, we don't know what Deckard is. We're not really sure, but he's certainly kinder to Deckard initially. And then he gets a little bit frustrated. So he, he pushes it. But then later on, um, and again, this is a moment that sticks out to me that I think about is towards the end of the movie, when Deckard is in front of Wallace and Wallace introduces Rachel 2.0, what happens to Rachel 2.0? Love kills her. What does that do to her? That boom, like 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 she's nothing. She's just she's nothing. Like she's joy. Like she's just she's nothing. And there's no hesitancy with love. And I'm curious if that's a programming thing, which it could be that she can indiscriminately kill her own kind. Whereas with Hey, when he was in the beginning, and he's after. Um, sapper there's has hesitancy in him you can see he's like he doesn't want to do it you could at least that's what i'm sensing i don't maybe i'm wrong but there's something hesitant about k and he's like man if you're going to come in i would much rather that than the alternative he doesn't want to kill him he doesn't want to fight with him but he ends up having to do it and you can see that he doesn't want to whereas with love there is no hesitancy there and i'm and i'm curious what that has done to her her emotional self her, her child self that she's killing her own kind. I think um, just really quick, just to go back before I lose it, um, what you said about when Wallace kills the replicant in front of her, um, it just occurred to me that obviously she's scared. Obviously I, I feel that she's crying because she couldn't do anything, but part of me is thinking maybe she's crying because this is yet again, another failure. Um, she's presented to her quote unquote father figure and it's a failure and he just destroyed it. So she's not the best one in that moment. And I think that I think finding his love is her whole goal. So I think it makes it easier for her to kill when she is told, especially if it's, if it's in front of him. Or if it's to complete an objective for him, I think she won't ever hesitate. But I do like that um, that contrast with Kay having been like hemming and hawing about killing Sapper. This is even before he starts to really get in his own head and, and kind of go off of his baseline. He, it's really interesting that he was already not willing to... Um, without hesitation, just kill one of his own kind. But love can do that without flinching for Wallace. And I don't know if it's because Kay doesn't really have that sort of father figure, mother figure, parental figure, God figure that he really subscribes to telling him exactly what to do. 
he doesn't have that give and take that well, mostly give by love and take by Wallace, but he doesn't have that same sort of lordship over him. So it's just really interesting to compare them in the way that you brought up those two scenes, Jamie. I thought that was really cool. It's also worth noting, I think, as Micah was alluding to, that um, love would be failing her baseline test, you know, when she's crying when the angel comes out which is really an interesting choice. And I almost feel like she's aware that she would be because she's so fixated on hiding it from Wallace. And then when Wallace sends those barracudas out to go scope, you can see she's very much trying to avoid being kind of caught, being emotional. That's an interesting moment. It's also, I think, the only time that she shows that kind of mercy or that kind of sadness at death because as you've both pointed out, like every other time that we see her killing or dispatching anybody, she's like so ruthless and fast about it. That's something else that I think is great about this character. She's so fucking scary. <laughs> like when she wants to be, she is so, so lethal. And like when she kills Coco, who's a human, right? This, I mean, Coco, as far as we know, is not a replicant. And she just like internally decapitates him and he's lets lights out. It's like, like he didn't even use a bug. Didn't even matter to her, you know? Uh, and that's, that's again, with a human. This is a, a replicant we're talking about who murders humans, which is interesting also, now, now that I think about it. Um, you you got to imagine that that's probably part of what makes her an experiment, right? Because like that seems to be something, I mean, although of course, Batty was the same thing. So I guess maybe, maybe there's precedent for it. But Batty belongs to a much different generation of Nexus models, right? By the time the Nexus 9s come around, the whole point of them essentially is that they can live longer because they're more controllable, right? They're more easy to monitor. They don't have the, the you know, outbursts that the previous Nexus generations had. And then we have this one who's considered basically the Ne Plus Ultra, the, the, perfect, the perfect replicant. And she falters. She fails her baseline for a moment in the face of death. And she has to go the rest of the film knowing that because you, you, I get a sense for sure Jamie, you were saying she's probably seen this many times. I, I think she probably sees this every day. I think this is this is just like a part of her life. And she is probably usually the one killing them for him, you know? Like when the defective models come out, he's probably just like, all right, go for it, you know? So she's probably, I, I, I in my head canon, love has, has retired, you know, quote unquote, hundreds, if not thousands of replicants over her lifespan. I think that's like one of the main functions that she has is to kind of just weed replicants out. Um, and I think that when she sees him do it, maybe it hits her differently. It's like she's watching it for, for once. But when she's the, the agent of death, she is so fast at it. Yeah. Like, it's so interesting that when she kills Rachel 2.0, that is like, that's maybe the fastest death that she causes in the whole. I mean, that's just instant. She just shoots her, shoots her right in the face. Um, it's so fascinating. But that, again, that was something that Wallace had ordered. And so... I guess this is a long-winded way of getting at, I think what we see with love is somebody who is so tightly inextricably wound up in the way that she's been programmed, which is to, to do exactly what Wallace says that she, she doesn't have time to hesitate when she's given a command, when she's able to watch things happen, she's in a different place. When she's able to watch him do it, she is able to have more of a, of a, you know, quote unquote human reaction to it. And I think that's part of where the depth of this character comes from. I want to make mention of something. It's it's within the topic we're talking about, but it's just something that I, I noticed 
um, as we talk about replicants and that scene with Wallace and the the new angel. And I just can't help think like there. Well, the more I think about this movie, the more I realize how most of the women are killed in the movie, except for um, Mariette and Fraser, who are minor characters. I mean, the minorest of minor characters, but all the main characters are killed. Um, all the women. And, but that scene with Wallace where he only sees that new replicant as only worth her reproductive value and how that resonates to the world that we live in today where there's all, you know, we have the reversal of Roe v. Wade and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to get into this, but it's just something that, that, uh, really is poignant to me that, um, people can tend to see women based off their worth as women in terms of, can you have a baby? And if you're not having a baby, what good are you? What are you doing? What do you, you know, you shouldn't, you know, and that's embodied in Wallace. Um, and it's a fascinating thing. I'll couch that for a little bit. It's just something I wanted to, to bring up. Uh, it's powerful to me. It's powerful to me. Um, the power that Wallace wields over love um, and that she, you can tell she's, you know, he puts her hand, his hand on her shoulder and goes, you're the best one. What is that? The word, is that what he says to her? You're the best angel of all. I think that's what he says and how great that is, but he also doesn't mean it at all. What he means is you're great because of what you do for me. You're not great because who you are. I don't, he doesn't ask her how she's doing. He doesn't inquire about her life. He, she is a robot to him. That's it uh, from what I can gather. And uh, again, what that does to her, but what that would do to a child, because that's what she is. And again, uh, you brought this up, uh, Patrick, the idea that these, you know, and I think, I think that um, Kay is a little bit more mature. You can just sense it with him, that his memories and that memory that he has, has just set him in a little bit of a different place than love, but love is a child. And when things happen that children don't understand, it fucks them up. It really does. Kids don't know what to do. They don't know how to feel when things are complicated and they don't understand it. And you can see that in love where love has a role, but when she's not in that role, when she's not the killer for hire, not even hire, but the created killer or whatever she is, because she's many things. She's not just Wallace's killer. She's Wallace's secretary. She's Wallace's, um, like she checks new replicants she's she's integral part of the wallace corporation in her own way but those are all functions who is she and i feel like we can see who she is in her eyes and again that moment where she kills joshi she's crying again her tears come down from her face and what does that mean why are tears coming from her face is it because internally she knows what she did is wrong, but she is performing a role? I don't know. I don't know. She's a fascinating character to me. Just um, you know, at, before we kind of close this out here, I, I do want to say the comics really are important to this conversation. So I, I also want to, as you mentioned in the beginning of the show, uh, bookmark this for a comics conversation because the current series, which is 2038, I believe, uh, concerns love's origins in some degree of depth and um, just going back to like the first issue for a moment, we, we see that she was created as a present for the LAPD as like a really perfect Blade Runner Nexus nine unit. 
And uh, for various reasons that you learn in the comics, she doesn't really fit in with the with the unit that she's assigned to. And Wallace takes her back. So she she was created to be essentially what Kay actually is. But whereas Kay has, you know, uh, had a pretty long and fruitful career as constant K in this in the Blade Runner unit, um, love wasn't. Love was something different, but something more uniquely suited to what Wallace needed or what he felt that he needed, which was this essentially superhuman that he could do whatever he wanted with. Um, so yeah, we definitely need to, I think, come back to this conversation when we come back to the comics, because there's a lot of really great stuff in there. And and I, I did read the first few issues of this. I think they're really, really good. Um, so we should definitely do that. I need to catch up. Sounds good. Yeah, I mean, like you said earlier, Micah, we could continue talking and new things. And that's the thing about Blade Runner. New things kind of sprout up all the time. Like, oh, what about this? What about this? And we've seen these movies how many times? I mean, more times than we can count at this point. And there are still new things that I notice. I just watched Blade Runner in downtown LA on the rooftop at the Mont Montalban Theater um, about a couple months ago. And, you know, on this big screen that was projected on the side of this other building and i was seeing things and experiencing things in this in blade runner that i hadn't noticed before in a movie that i've seen maybe a hundred times or more um yeah so i'm excited to talk about this and it's been great to talk to you guys and kind of come back to who we are as a podcast i mean i agree with what both of you are saying and like it is not lost on me the importance of the topic and the very crude mirror that the movies hold up to nature about treatment of women. We've talked about this extensively. I've talked about it a lot on this podcast about what it means to me when I watch these movies as a woman in the world. And now as a woman in a world where Roe v. Wade has been reversed and where a lot of things feel much scarier, um, it's definitely difficult to think about it that way, but it's important to think about it that way because that's what art is. It's forcing us to look at our humanity and the best art does that. And again, I agree with both of you. We could just talk about this for hours and I do want to get into it more when I read the comics about love's introduction. So let's definitely get back to it. Sounds good. Thank you so much, everybody. Yeah. Uh, for being here with us this year. Thank you especially to those of you who have stayed with us, even though we've switched formats for the last few months. Um, we know that it's like not quite as much content as we have been doing previously, but we hope that you're feeling like it's um, content that's a little more thought out and a little more exploratory. Uh, you know, we definitely are planning on going back again to buy weekly stuff, you know, in the relatively near future, but we're going to stick with this for now. And we just want to thank you again so much for, I mean, we didn't lose any patrons really from this. We didn't get any words of, you know, anger about it. And um, for those of you who have been patrons for a while, know that this is something we've been bouncing around with you all um, in, you know, dialogue for probably about a year and a half now, just knowing that, you know, we, we wanted to be able to, to contribute the kind of brain space to this show that it deserves and not just be kind of churning things out. And you unanimously said, go for it. Don't worry. And you've stuck by us this whole time and done such great stuff for us. Um, so thank you so much for your support, for tuning in, for the dialogue that you you know bring to this every single time we do an episode, the amazing emails that you send us. I, you know, I, I love responding to those things. Uh, thank you so much to all of you and, and um, have a wonderful close to your year. And we will see you in 2024 
with lots of new stuff to share. As Jamie mentioned, we have some new guests coming on. We're really excited about. We're going to revisit the, the comics. We're going to do some more analysis episodes. And don't forget, we're also doing some exclusive Blade Runner stuff on Patreon now as well. We just did an anatomy of the scene last month. We're going to probably do at least three or four more of those, I would imagine, in the next year. So um, lots more Blade Runner stuff coming. And uh, we can't wait to see you there for it. So thank you. You guys are the best ones. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> and Yeah. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you. <laughs>